Genius, episode 16, Tour de Cthulhu. In this episode, Donald Dennis talks with Kenneth Hyde, master of all things Cthulhu and of Tour de Lovecraft, to discuss how deeply the Cthulhu mythos has woven its tendrils into modern popular culture. Inverse Genius Podcast is sponsored by our fantastic Patreons at patreon.com slash obg. Head over there and check us out. Also, spread the word of the Inverse Genius Podcast. Thanks. Welcome to Inverse Genius, a podcast where we talk about whatever we want, not just gaming stuff. So today I have brought in an expert uh, who I have known for, well, when I think about how long I've known him, it makes me feel old. So I'm going to bring on Ken Hyatt right now. Hey, Ken. Hey, Don. Uh, I think we should talk about uh, things chthonic today, yogg even. Indeed. The what? veritable mythos that is so mythos that is the mythos. It is the mythos. Um, so, Ken, before we dive into what we're talking about, which is all things Cthulhu-related and our culture and gaming and whatnot, how, how about you let our listeners know uh, where you can be found on the social internet and also where you talk about things on your own show? Uh, I can be found at Kenneth Height on Twitter and Kenneth Height on Facebook. That's my places. I have a hilariously under-maintained uh, live journal if people are still 13 or Russian spies. And I also occasionally drop in on the Google Plus just to let the people trapped on that glacier uh, that I still <laughs> love them. Uh, but pretty much uh, Twitter and Facebook will find me, uh, I- ideally not over much of me, just exactly enough of me. And if you want even more, you can of course listen to myself and my co-designer and colleague Robin D. Laws on Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, which is our podcast in which we, wait for it, talk about stuff. What kind of stuff? Gaming stuff, history, time travel, elliptony, the occult, food, all the stuff. All, all of the stuff. All the stuff worth talking about. If it, if, it were, if it was worth talking about, we talk about it. If it's not, that's how you can tell we don't talk about it. Including uh, Canadian politics. Canadian politics, sometimes, if we're very lucky. Or American or, spycraft. Yes, yes. <laughs> or anybody's spycraft. Uh, yeah, tradecraft, um, uh, cinema, the the doors are open. It's like inverse genius every day. It, it really is. Little micro segments of, uh, of goodness. About 15 minutes per topic, yep. several topics per episode. Right. Go check it out. It is on my... Uh, well, it's, it's really on my road trip list. I stockpile them until either I'm going to be running games so I can remember what you're talking about, or if I'm going on a road trip and I'm like, well, I'm going to run out of CDs. I want something that's going to keep me awake and interested. Right. So, uh, yeah, Ken and Robin talk about stuff. I'm probably pushing them too hard on my own show. But that's all right. <laughs> you'll let me. <laughs> Don has a, there's an explanation because, of course, Don used to listen to just Ken talk about stuff. And so having it cut with 50% Canadian content is probably just about right now. Um, you know, uh, I, I really appreciate Robin's perspective of things. <laughs> yes. But uh, he's not here on the show. No, so, he's not. So I have Sorry, to, Robin. I have to say one way or the other that I prefer Ken. Um, I think it's contractual. Yes, yes. probably. Blood bonds and such. Yes, yes. The, uh, or uh, the 23rd Street Death March of, uh, yes. of gathering up uh, The books. olden days. Before you had Amazons.com and had to buy books like a mortal, like an animal. <laughs> um, so, uh, in fact, it is on one of those great trips that, uh, that we went and I was picking up a book. And I, what was it? It was the fungi from Yagath and other poems. Yes. 
and I was like, Ken, this is one you're looking for, right? Right. So we're, this is our transition to the mythos, in case folks didn't know. Right. It's, it's all... Wait love, for it. It's all Lovecraftian poetry. <laughs> yes. Um, all uh, the time. And, uh, and you're like, yes, that's the one. And you reach for it. And I was like, oh, well, then I will buy this. Yes. The, the look on your face was the, I think, the one time in our lives where I have gotten the better of you <laughs> in, in, in anything. And then later we went to a convention with uh, Robert Block was there. Right. And this is a story I love to tell is uh, I think you weren't going to show him your uh, uh, A is for Azathoth because you had done what? <laughs> yeah, because I had done what? You what? had created a... I had created a Edward Gorey-esque uh, cartoon series. Mm-hmm. HPL and the other 23 letters is what it was called. Yep. Uh, beginning A is for Azathoth, uh, the thing from the sky, B is for Byaki, the uh, corpse that can fly, etc., etc., etc. In the lovely spirit of Edward Gorey, uh, with only the self-confidence that an 18-year-old who is taking on a timeless genius can possess. Exactly. And however, I still had some remnant of proportion and said, you know what, we're not going to show that to Robert Block, who it's- is... After all, Robert Block. Instead, you had this giant stack of books for him to sign. Right. And I think I showed up with one book for him to sign. Yeah. And and your um and your little pamphlet of A is for Azathoth, and passed it off to him and said, "This is from your biggest fan." Um and uh he uh, he he actually took the time to read through it and chit chat about it and he was actually very pleased. Yes. And then I handed him a book of of uh, of his and I was like I'd like you to autograph it to Ken yeah. and so he autographed it to, from your biggest fan passed it off to you which he said he's, it was uh, with great admiration oh, is yes. what it wrote and yes. it was uh, volume one or two of Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos yes. which you had uh, again snaffled it from literally in front of me oh, man, that's what it in was. the dealer's room no you also beat me at one of those stores on 23rd Street and it may have been Fun Guy from Yagath, and I'm pretty sure you also beat me to a Clark Ashton Smith on 23rd Street at one point. Yeah, but that doesn't count these days. Not as much, no. sadly. But <laughs> that's a different podcast. But uh, you had gotten uh, Tales of the Little Mythos, and it was volume one or two. It was the one I didn't have. And you were like, ha ha, look at you. You are <laughs> stupid. And I had, among others, uh, Robert Block's novel Strange Eons in my pile to sign. And you... Uh, gave him HPL and the other 23 letters and then you said sign it to this guy and so he wrote to Ken with uh, great admiration Robert Block and I saw that and was dumbfounded and um, uh, then he wanted you to sign and then uh, and then I gave him Strange Eons and and I said could you sign this to me please and he said uh, no and I was like well there you go I've been dissed by Robert Block (laughs) I guess I can die happy (laughs) and he says you haven't signed your book to me yet Oh. And it was like, oh. So I signed it to him, and then he signed uh, Strange Eons to me. And yes. that was the great story. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, you should never be a dick to someone who wants your autograph. Because <laughs> you are not Robert Block. And he was awesome. <laughs> yeah, that was that was fun. And yeah. uh, so I think I ended up with copies. I'm not an autograph hound, so I... I have strange eons and uh, the tales books and mm-hmm. stuff like that, but for me, it's never been been about getting the autograph. It's like, oh, I've read this, I've devoured it, I folded the corners, mm-hmm. folded. You know, as a librarian, people sort of get irritated how I treat paperback books. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's neat 
that you can sort of help someone who does. Well, it's not just so much the autograph. It's the sort of the sense that they physically held the book, yes. right, that you have. And if you've got a book that Clive Barker you know held because he signed it in front of you and gave it to you, that's better than if you bought a Clive Barker book, I think. It yeah. just yeah. feels cooler. Um, at one point, a friend of mine showed me Ulysses S. Grant's signed visiting card. Hmm. And, uh, you know, he saved America. So you touch a thing that he touched, there's sort of a, a temporal charge to it that is, you know, I don't, there's plenty of people whose autographs would not mean a lot to me. You know, I, I'm, I'm an admirer of uh, classically great baseball player Honus Wagner, but if I saw his autograph, I'd be like, well, that's cool. Someone could <laughs> make a lot of money off that. But to have stood in the presence of Robert Block or in the fictive presence of Ulysses S. Grant, that's pretty badass. That, yeah. Well, that's why we have museums. Exactly. It is why we have museums, except they don't let you touch things. Um, yeah, usually. Usually. Although, when I was in uh, the uh, Royal College of Surgeons Library in London, I got to touch with my hands John Dee's personal library. His books. And you talked his about magical it. books. I did. I talked about it on the podcast. And I'm still enjoying it. <laughs> and, uh, yes, the smile is there. I can yeah. see it. Uh, pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, um, so I guess back onto topic. Now that we've been mythos adjacent for a while, John D. Robert Love, uh, Robert Block. We're we're moving around Lovecraft. We are. We're we're in that circle. Tangent two. So uh, my theory is that uh, you know Lovecraft, of course, has been known to a degree or another since he was writing. Yeah. Um, if not, if nothing else, a lot of authors knew him because he was writing their stuff. Um, well, or, that's less important, but <laughs> more to the point, he was helping them write their stuff. But, yes. And that's why James Blish, uh, Fritz Leiber, uh, Robert Block, these guys, you know, reverenced him is because he took time out of his life to give them free writing advice. And if you can imagine writing a way to whoever your personal writing idol is, uh, Laird Barron or um, uh, Elizabeth Hand or Stephen King or whoever it might be, and then getting a 40-page letter back critiquing your story, mm -hmm. uh, trust me, they will not do that. <laughs> <laughs> that won't happen. Ken may have tried. Uh, you oh, can't yeah. speak to that issue, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> and to get that from H.P. Lovecraft was a powerful moment, even if, like James Blish, their writing did not wind up really in the Lovecraftian mold. Although, of course, you can look at something like uh, the Devil's Day and say maybe there's a little bit of Lovecraftianism in that, mm -hmm. and or the uh, the uh, Planet in Case of Conscience has a certain Lovecraftian quality to it as well. So even the people you don't think Lovecraft influenced, he influenced. And then the as I would argue, one of the three most important figures in the American pop cultural landscape, he influenced people who don't even know they were influenced by him. Mm -hmm. So you know, there's Lovecraft, there's Dashiell Hammett who maybe gets a co-credit with Raymond Chandler, and there's Owen Wister. And those guys furnished virtually everything that we think of when we think of pop culture now. Who's the third one? Owen Wister. He wrote The Virginian. It was the first big popular Western that gotcha, sort of yeah. blew up the field. Um, obviously, Louis L'Amour and Max Brand did a, did a huge amount. Um, you know, even Elmore Leonard had a great influence on, on the Western. But the whole concept of the sort of uh, hero of the Western to the extent it wasn't created by James Fenimore Cooper, it was created by Owen Wister. And so much that we think of when we think of cowboys is something that Owen Wister did. 
Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I knew the Virginian. I just right, yeah. didn't couldn't pull the author. So well, that's the kind of person I'm talking about. I think that there's a lot of people who every time they play a video game and they see a tentacle, they don't think, "Oh, that was probably an obscure Rhode Island fantasist who I've never heard of that did that." <laughs> um, so I, I wonder if you know because now it seems like Cthulhu is everywhere. Yeah, I mean, from- well, I mean, certainly if you're woke to him, he is. I mean, people like you and me are now drowning in him. But I think that there's still plenty of people for whom it is a a uh, an occasional item or drifts into the radar in a disguise in a way that they don't recognize the, the tentacles right. being the classic but I mean uh, in, with, within geek culture oh yeah at least it's, it's omnipresent absolutely um, and I wonder if in fact that the the continuing influence do you think that pulling him into role-playing games so much which has sort of been the spawn or foundation of so much of our modern geek culture um, as much as it is influenced by the the stuff that came before had had some influence on spreading the mythos and making it more wildly approachable. Absolutely, popular. yeah. Uh, what I like to say is that before 1981, when Call of Cthulhu came out, Lovecraft would be published and go out of print. Mm-hmm. There was uh, three, I think, waves of paperbacks of Lovecraft. There was the original Avon and Armed Services stuff in the 40s, then it went away. There was the 60s stuff with... Um, uh, uh, Pan, I think, and uh, Ballantine, and then that went away. Then there was the 70s stuff, and Lancer, and, and that, and then that went away. And then in 1981, Call of Cthulhu comes out, and in 83, Del Rey comes out with blood-curdling Tales of the Macabre with those great Michael Whelan covers. Oh. That book is still in print. Yes. And the reason, I argue, that Lovecraft stayed in print is because 300,000 people who played Call of Cthulhu said, I have to buy a Lovecraft book. And that is the sort of jump at the bump that gets people reading Lovecraft. And now, of course, uh, there's a degree to which he's just sort of... You can't be taken out of print. It would be like trying to get Tarzan or Dracula out of print. It's never going to happen. So he's in the Library of America. He's in Penguin Classics. He's he's there forever. He's in the canon. Whether you like it or not, Lovecraft is there. And now he's public domain, right? Yes. So Lovecraft you- has been public domain mostly because Weird Tales didn't renew their copyrights. And Lovecraft had died, and no one in his estate renewed the copyrights afterwards. And so there are free PDF versions of it online. Yes, many lovely free versions anywhere you want. I recommend going to the Cthulhu Chick uh, online and finding her version because it is competently OCR'd and uh, well put together. <laughs> and it's a lovely thing. So if you're looking for one of the free ones, look for hers. It's great. And then kick her a couple of nickels in her uh, PayPal jar. Absolutely. And uh, there's all kinds of audio versions of them. Yep, yep. Some with British accents, some without, some with Australian accents. Wide variety. I, I still remember when I was a kid, I had a, a tape, a cassette tape. For those of you who don't know, that was like a, a hard drive, except it was not at all hard. <laughs> um, and it and would still melt in the Oklahoma it would, sun. It would still melt or transform into Queen's Greatest Hits in the Oklahoma sun. Um <laughs> But uh, I had one of what I think was uh, was Boris Karloff reading like the Dunwich Horror or something like that. So it was like a, it was a long time ago and it was very very weird. But yeah, I mean, every now and again you'd see it drop out. But now there's tons and tons of Audible Lovecraft and of course live readings of Lovecraft by uh, people like Andrew Lehman from the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society and uh, my good buddies on H.P. Podcraft, uh, the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, who do lots of great uh, live readings as well. Uh, well, I guess we should talk about those uh, various uh, podcasts and stuff. So, 
What um, Do you take time to consume any of them at this point? Well, as you know, Don, I believe that podcasts are a degenerate medium. Yes. Uh, I, have, yes I have no truck with them whatsoever. <laughs> but I am, uh, I've been lucky enough to be on the HP Podcraft uh, literary podcast every so often. And I certainly listen to me. I'm a big fan of me. And they do a good job uh, listening to it. Uh, or They do a good job um, uh, sort of looking into Lovecraft, sort of going into it. They were nice enough to have me on because of, I think, because of my book toward Lovecraft, uh, which analyzed the stories just sort of as a first, uh, first way in for people who know Lovecraft is cool but want to know a little more. And they were fans of that book. They would have me on, and so we would talk about stuff. And I've been on their live show. They're great guys, uh, Chris and Chad. So that's my favorite, but it's mostly because I like Chris and Chad and they've had me on. But there's lots of Lovecraftian podcasts and they're all to their in their own sort of metier. Uh, very cool because he's an endless supply. Um, uh, let's see. There's uh, Paul of Cthulhu in Britain does the, I think it's the yogsothoth.com podcast. Mm-hmm. That's sort of gaming focused, but it also has a Lovecraftian quality to it. Mike Davis does a vidcast that's like the Lovecraft e-zine is attached to it, but I forget what the name of the vidcast is. But Mike Davis does a great one, and he has sort of writers on who are, who get very writerly. And if you've ever thought, gosh, I'd like to look at writers, that's exactly the, the thing for you to do. Hmm. Then seek help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or go listen to uh, How to Write Good. Yes. Uh, Kid and Robin talk about stuff. Another helpful. Because <laughs> we do not have a How to Look Good segment. <laughs> uh, so with... I remember that uh, back in the 80s, we would look for Lovecraftian influences or mythos stories from any author, and that's when um, Ramsey Campbell's Cold Print came in, out, and stuff. Uh, are there, is, is Lovecraft stuff, or is the Cthulhu mythos just sort of falling into stuff everywhere nowadays, that it's it's the Arkham House or whoever it is isn't just smacking everyone who puts that kind of thing in it. Yeah, back anciently in the days, August Derleth would threaten people who wrote Cthulhu Mythos stories without his imprimatur. So, um, um, what's his name? Robert Barber Johnson, the guy that wrote uh, Far Below. Um, he got sort of a mean letter. Uh, the guy who wrote uh, Spawn of the Green Abyss, whose mm-hmm. name I can't recall directly, but it's like C something or other. Um, he got a mean letter. So these guys sort of all uh, stopped, and it was just the people that uh, Derleth uh, wanted to print. The anointed ones. The anointed ones. The, and to, to be fair, he was trying to keep the sort of explosion of mediocre Lovecraftiana. Uh, <laughs> it's like if, if Derleth is not going to write the mediocre Lovecraftiana, no one is going to write the mediocre Lovecraftiana. That's the, that's trying to figure out how to say that exact yes. thing. And then, of course, uh, it opened up when sort of Lynn Carter took over the mantle and began to do his own stuff. Robert Price similarly as, as a more welcoming attitude if that is the good way to say that um, uh, than Derleth did and in, endorses a lot of people and there's some great Lovecraftian authors now it's just that as it has become a more and more proven marketing tactic uh, for right now right now it is almost the only saleable short fiction anthology if you come to someone with a short fiction anthology and it is a Cthulhu anthology people know that there is a a, a certain hardcore of people that will buy it. Mm-hmm. And that is not the case if you come and you say, I have short fiction about literally anything else. Cowboys. People are like, no one reads short fiction, go away. But people will still read Lovecraftian short fiction. And so it draws, I think, people who are maybe not as interested in Lovecraft to write it so that they can sell. And it draws people who know that 
you know, once again, if the demand is high, the supply can be watered down. Um, and that's what happens, I think, with a lot of this stuff. But the other thing is that we are in a place where there are some really great stories that are just cropping up and uh, turning out to be really, really good. So it's like everything else, it's a matter of know your anthologist, know your editor, uh, trust and love them. Well, it's probably pretty late in the discussion, but uh, what is the Cthulhu Mythos? <laughs> <laughs> Let's back this up, Bob. Uh, the Cthulhu Mythos uh, can be defined any number of ways, but I define it as uh, a fiction or fictive nonfiction in the sort of Borgesian tradition that is uh, that involves a proper noun coined or read uh, or um, uh, refurbished by Lovecraft. So I would say, and others would not, that fiction about Carcosa is still Cthulhu Mythos because Lovecraft adopted Robert W. Chambers' Carcosa into the Cthulhu Mythos. But certainly, if you're writing a story set in Arkham, Massachusetts, you're in the Cthulhu Mythos whether you want to be or not. And I would argue whether you're writing in a specifically Lovecraftian vein or not, because Lovecraft wrote a very specific kind of weird fiction, very specific kind of cosmic horror that many people are not writing, either because they know they can't do it or because their philosophical and fictional interests do not lie in that direction. And so you get things like amiable uh, um, uh, uh, private eye pastiches set in the Cthulhu mythos world. Some of them are good, some of them are not good. Um, and Or you get uh, attempts to detour in Lovecraft's politics and look at a Cthulhu mythos uh, from the outsider's point of view along the lines of Shoggoths in Bloom by Elizabeth Bear, which is a great story, but is literally anti-Lovecraftian in a way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it does seem that uh, you know I'm running uh, Lovecraft or not Lovecraft. I'm running Cthulhu theme role playing games and stuff at the library, teaching you know kids how to do that, and it's a great, great tool for an investigative role playing game versus some of the more action oriented ones. And the kids are like, "Hey, that's really cool. Uh, where can I find out more?" And I'm like, "Oh, maybe I chose the wrong author to introduce to teenagers <laughs> yeah. um, in 2007." Well, if they're online, they've seen worse. Well, yes, yes, I know, but uh, I, I get guarantee you, yes, I know, yes. <laughs> but the there are stories in Lovecraft in which his uh, racial ideals, if that's the word I'm looking for, mm-hmm. are at the very least subtextualized and soft pedaled. Not every Lovecraft story is the horror at Red Hook. Mm-hmm. Um, you can absolutely read Shadow of Rinsmith as not about race. Now, I think if you read it without understanding what Lovecraft thought about race, you're only reading part of the story. Right. But when you realize that at the end, uh, spoiler for a literally 90-year-old story, spoilers, uh, the narrator comes to recognize the glory and the wonder of the alien creatures, that undercuts a great deal of Lovecraft's a putative argument although when Lovecraft wrote that you know that Lovecraft was feeling horrified but we are not required in this year of grace 2017 to read it the way he wrote it because that's not how literature works uh, very few of us for example read Henry V and say thank God monarchism is right <laughs> we say what a great play for all the other reasons it's a great play right. uh, Shakespeare's politics are no longer relevant to us because they are as alien to us as uh, Lovecraft's alien cone creatures. Although, of course, since Lovecraft, while writing a utopia, says they uh, live in a sort of fascistic socialism, maybe that's not as alien to us as we'd like to believe. Yeah. Well, and it does feel like, 
you know, when he goes into his, his about the man, man, mankind's greatest fear is the fear of the unknown, um, that that pretty much explains most of his opinions on everything. Yeah. You know? I mean, the circle of what is unknown to a guy who never finished high school and lived in New England his whole life is a, it's a bigger circle than it is ideally for a citizen of the world with internet access and one hopes a college degree mm-hmm. uh, now. And that's just the case of it. On the other hand, plenty of people have tripped themselves up very badly underestimating how much Lovecraft knew about his uh, his world and his society. He was an inveterate traveler. He had tons of friends, very busy correspondent, wrote people back and forth. He knew a lot, but he had made up his mind, as I think many of us do, that the things that he didn't know weren't worth knowing. Yes, yes. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not here to attack or defend his... Uh his stuff. This is about the mythos. Exactly. So this is about this is about the icon that he created. It's not about the guy who carved it. We've given our nod to the fact that it is an issue, and it's more of an issue for some people right. than others. And we can move on unless mm-hmm. you have any final words on that. I mean, I, uh, again, you can uh, you can read most of the later works, the sort of the great works, the masterpieces outside that framework. Uh, there is certainly an argument, and Michelle Welbeck makes it as well as anyone else that it is that framework that makes those things possible. And that should keep anyone up at night when they think about how art works. But we don't have to think about that at this particular point. Because, as I say, Michelle Walbeck has done a great job. <laughs> well, okay then. Um, so, what do you think that some of the themes of the mythos that have kept it relevant or kept it um, sort of hanging around our society or, or our geekdom or whatever uh, so long are? Well, I think you sort of have a couple of different things going on. With geekdom... A lot of what is great about Cthulhu is that it acts as sort of a Freemason sign. It's a it's a hand flash. It's a it's a bumper sticker. It's a way that we say, "I'm in the club. You're in the club. Let's be in the club together." And of course, the hilarious thing is the closest thing in Lovecraft to that is the activities of the various evil cults. <laughs> so, in a way, by being uh, woke to Cthulhu, we are of the cult of Cthulhu. We are the people who are bringing about the end of the world that Lovecraft's protagonists feared. And so there's a fun postmodern aspect to that. But that's within the geek world. I think there's just the degree of mutual recognition. Why I think it's relevant, why I think it's still around, why I think this is still with us and the weird hyperdimensional pigmen from uh, William Hope Hodgson are not, is because Lovecraft created a myth of the apocalypse that fits our beliefs about the apocalypse. It is a 20th century. It is a modern apocalypse. It's an apocalypse that comes whether you're good or bad. It's an apocalypse that is unchangeable, unshakable, unmovable. Uh, It is inevitable. It is malign or indifferent. These are things that I think if you think about the things that you are worried about in, in the world now, whether it's terrorism, whether it's the explosion in cancer rates, whether it's uh, ecocide, global warming, any of the ways that you're worried the world will end, what do they all have in common? They have those things in common. Lovecraft has created a mass extinction event, and he's created a fiction and a symbol for it, an icon for it, in a way that we can, when we grapple with the concept of Cthulhu, we grapple with the concept of Azathoth or Neolothotep, we are grappling with those same concepts. And because those are so relevant in the 20th century, Lovecraft is writing from the perspective of someone who says, hey, guess what? Humanity is a cosmic accident. Hmm. Uh, if you you know read Darwin, we are not created by God in his image. We're created as the matter of a bunch of random chance in uh, a monkey DNA. Uh, the, the solar system is not the center of the world. 
uh, center of the cosmos. It's just one little tiny yellow star on the edge of a galaxy, which is not a particularly big galaxy, amongst 100,000 other galaxies. Uh, the universe is not 6,000 years old. It's 6 billion years old because, hey, look at that geology. So all of human experience is this tiny mayfly speck of the history of the Earth. All of these things are in Lovecraft's mind. He is a devotee of science, huge science fan, also an atheist, not particularly concerned with God. So he is looking at these questions directly, and because he's looking at them directly, he's terrified of them because they mean nothing matters. Now, if you are a, uh, a Rhode Island would-be gentleman, a great deal of things matter to you. Architecture, for example. <laughs> and the belief that Providence, Rhode Island, and everything he cares about, uh, literature and art and cats, could all be wiped away by accident or by nothing. That's a very 20th century, that's a very modern fear, and Lovecraft incarnates that over and over and over in his great stories. And we respond to that because we have the same fears. Even though we're not so much worried about a cult of deathless Chinaman doing it, as Lovecraft was, but we are just as concerned that the universe is malign or that whatever happens to us, no matter how many cans we recycle, is going to happen. And that's just the way the world is. Yeah, I mean, we may be more worried about that uh, some shirtless guy riding a bear, you know, yes. wielding an automatic weapon could be the end of the world, but, right. uh, you know, well, I mean, or not. You know. uh, Lovecraft was also capable of personalizing his uh, <laughs> apocalyptic figures. Um, one of the great uh, 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 shade throwings, I think, in Lovecraft that no one rec uh, recognizes is that the human who is present in the cult of the Amigo mm -hmm. in Whisper in Darkness has a Bostonian accent. And if you read that as someone who grew up their whole life in Rhode Island, <laughs> it's like, oh, I'll tell you who's going to end the damn world is those assholes in Boston. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, yeah. Didn't, I didn't catch that, yeah, really. But it's one of those things where if you read it, you're like, oh, I see, we're, we're, we're just a little Providence jab. When you're when you're living in Oklahoma, yes. you, you might not get that. Well, or you might, because you're like, oh, it's like he's talking about a Texan. Someone from Arkansas. Yes, right, well, like that. we, that's the that's the inbred Dunwich cult. <laughs> oh, oh. There's a guy from Texas who comes to Arkansas to lead them in the rituals that will destroy the world. That's how that works out. Um. I think I played through that. I think you ran that previously. <laughs> may have. I may have. Um, so, in in some versions of the mythos, um, they are more mysticized, like water god, fire god, mm -hmm. and so forth like that. And um, do you think that that does a disservice, or that it's just a way for people to um, sort of understand what's going on? Or, or, you know, because Cthulhu is typically portrayed as you know a, a water aspect of some sort and yet he's pinned under the water because of the water is muting his powers or whatever so I don't know if this is a good discussion to have but how do you think that embodying the the various um, aspects works well uh, like anything it can work well or it can work badly anything that tends to systematize the mythos and I am certainly as guilty as the next guy who wrote a role-playing game mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone who isn't Lynn Carter of doing this systematizing the mythos weakens it because the mythos is about as we talked about the unknown it's about the unknowable and once you've said okay Azathoth is an outer god Cthulhu is a great old one we've already broken that concept a bit and once we have our list, our Wikipedia page of 87 billion great old ones, we're weakening the mythos. 
because we're categorizing them at all. So any attempt to categorize, I feel uh, cheapens, or not cheapens, but it uh, etiolates the unknowability that is the core of the mythos. And Lovecraft knew this because if you read his stories, they contradict each other all the time because Lovecraft, uh, I think, knew Greek mythology well enough to know that there is no single source story about Poseidon or Hercules or Zeus or any of those guys, that they've all got com uh, contradictory myths about their origins and their powers and their nature. And Lovecraft sort of puts that in with Nyarlathotep and he puts that in with the Cthulhu beings. Uh, who in uh, in Call of Cthulhu are sort of this pinnacle uh, entity from outside, and in At the Mountains of Madness are just one more thing smacking the Porsche, uh, elder things around. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, a bunch of octopi that fell out of the sky, and we don't care. And so there's a there's a way that he, he touches on his own mythology that I think a lot of people don't do because they want to have it all organized in their head, and August Erleth, who coined the sort of elemental treatment of the mythos, is one of those people. Now, that said... Uh, Durleth's stories, some of them, are quite good. And, uh, for example, uh, The Thing That Walked on the Wind is a great Cthulhu Mythos story and is bound up in Durleth's elemental concept. And to believe that if the mythos was understood in medieval times by a medieval scholar like Abdul Alhazred, mm -hmm. Abdul Alhazred, being a educated guy, would have elementalized the mythos. And you can certainly say... Since the elements, classically, make up literally everything there is in the world, to argue that everything in the world is a malign consciousness that wants us destroyed can be a powerful horror concept if you use it that way. If the only thing you're using it is as a sort of a sorting mechanic, that's a little artificial. And I think goes against what Lovecraft was, was doing. But if you use it as another dimension for the horror in the way that uh, Durleth does in the better Durleth stories, you can get good stuff out of it because the whole point of a, of a great icon like Cthulhu is any direction you come at him should be something terrifying. There should be no place where you come at him and say, oh, well, that, all right, that's not so bad. Um, and your notion of the, of the water god imprisoned underneath the water, that seems contradictory, but you can go into any number of mythologies and find plenty of examples of a chaos god who's imprisoned in a realm of chaos or uh, any number of other similar sorts of uh, ways that they shuffle gods off the stage when they're trying to explain why no one worships them anymore. Uh, you know, where Saturn went is a great question. Or, or Kronos. He's, well, he went to live on an island. Really? That's that's your story? <laughs> he, he doesn't come back? You know, that seems odd that he would be you know settled into retirement in Florida. Uh, that, that, that doesn't really work out. So the, the, the original myths are themselves messed up, is I guess what I'm getting at. And so to argue that a myth makes no sense is to argue for its power, not against it, I guess. Okay, cool. Um, so speaking in that way, do you think that the impact that the Cthulhu mythos has in game stories, uh, movies, whatever, is lessened because there's so much of it in the culture today? I mean, I gave... Eric Dewey, uh, who's sometimes co-host of this uh, very podcast, a stuffed Cthulhu, uh, you know, about as big as a baby, many, many years ago. So I went over to his house one day when he was going to have a child, and there in the baby seat uh, yeah. <laughs> was the stuffed Cthulhu. And so his children have grown up with a stuffed Cthulhu as one of their most prized childhood possessions. Mm -hmm. And do you think that that is sort of lessening the impact of it, or that 
that just because we know it in a friendly light doesn't mean it's going to be any less creepy in another way. I think that what lessens the impact of a horror icon is doing it badly. And that's true of Cthulhu, that's true of vampires, that's true of whatever. Uh, Let the Right One In is not less terrible because we have uh, uh, Love at First Bite and Count Chocula cereal. A good Cthulhu story is not less terrible because we have uh, plush Cthulhus. And in fact, if you look at the number of creepy dolls that are in movies right now, I think you by definition can't say that having a beloved childhood doll makes something less creepy. Often it does the other thing because it, it creates that incongruity. Now, the familiarity is a danger because, of course, when Lovecraft was writing, nobody knew what Cthulhu was, and it was utter mystery, and we just can't get that back. But I think that that's the same problem you have about reading anything from a previous era, is you have to sort of put yourself into that uh, mindset in order to get the most out of it. But even now, even having read as much Cthulhu as I have, you can read, uh, or in my case, re-re-re-re-re-re-re-read Call of Cthulhu, and it still works because it is a masterpiece. I've... Uh, I reread Dracula probably a dozen times writing Dracula dossier, and that's still a great and terrifying book. And especially when Dracula's on st- on screen, he never loses it. And by God, if there's someone who should be like drained of all power by now, it's Dracula. But he can still bring it. So I think that it's really saying uh, cute Thulu is ruining it is a cop-out. It's either explaining why you don't have the imagination to read, or you're expressing a worry about other people, which is always suspect when you say, you know, oh, I think other people can't handle it. It's like, you know what? Back off. Handle yourself. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Well, uh, before we go any further, I understand that about this time, in theory, sometime here in July, you've got something happening Cthulhu-related. Yes, I do. Uh, I've previously alluded to Tour de Lovecraft, which is the book that I wrote that got uh, such uh, pleasant attention from H.P. Podcraft. We are kickstarting the sequel, uh, which is Tour de Lovecraft, The Destinations, in which I look at the Lovecraftian settings. And that is a expansion and completion of the essays that I did in Weird Tales back in the day under the column title Lost in Lovecraft. Uh, we felt that perhaps the air supply to Lovecraft Venn diagram is not as robust as my editor thought it was. So we're going back to the Tour de Lovecraft title. But if uh, you look at something like Arkham, it's how does Lovecraft treat Arkham? What does it sim- signify? What does it symbolize? How, how does he present it in the various stories? How, what does he say about Antarctica? What does he say about ancient Rome? What does he say about the places that are the settings of his stories? And Lovecraft is so setting-minded. He's so location-minded. Uh, so much of his stories are about the physicality of your surroundings that I think that's a really great way to look at, you know, what does Lovecraft mean by Vermont? And what does Lovecraft mean by uh, hyperspace, when he puts something in hyperspace? And those sorts of uh, uh, longitudinal looks at Lovecraft, I think, really help to sort of uh, look at the stories and the myths and the icons, uh, which is the part that we love, and less about, you know, the individual person in Rhode Island who wrote them, which is pretty much of a side question whether you're talking about Lovecraft or Shakespeare. It's fun to know, and maybe uh, like the Bostonian thing, it gives you a, oh, there you go, I get that. But it's not it's not as crucial as the sort of psycho, uh, psychological school of, of criticism, I think, would have you believe. So are you going to also go to what made them effective locations for weird tales, specifically? Yeah, I mean, that, that some of that as well. is the what, what do they signify? 
that that makes them uh, that makes them work, or what does Lovecraft find in them that makes them work? Even so, even though this isn't a role playing podcast, if you are a role playing game master, that that sounds like something that would be very useful. I think so. Yes, uh, but if you're just at all interested in Lovecraft, uh, the idea is that it will be useful, and. Uh, if the Kickstarter goes well, we may even expand the first tour to Lovecraft and add some of the uh, collaborations, uh, for example, Out of the Eons, um, uh, the, the Curse of Yegg, some of the stories that he wrote that are theoretically collaborations with other, other writers. But you and I and uh, everybody else know that Lovecraft pretty much wrote it and put their name on it because he was a nice guy. What a great idea you have given me to start me writing a story about. <laughs> yes. Yes. A, a ghostly old woman on a mound? Thanks, Hazel. Now you sit over here. That's right. Uh, and, in fact, yeah, I, I went to Binger. Yeah. There was woefully mound. Woefully mound-free, yes. yeah. But uh, Hydro has mounds. Oh, So, hooray. I mean, there are mounds. There are. Just there. not in Binger. Yeah. And again, uh, you can just imagine Lovecraft looking at the garbagey atlas of Oklahoma that he has, you know, the, the you know little atlas of the world that he has in his house. It's not. There's not going to be a topographic map of Oklahoma, and certainly not on the ma- individual mound scale. Yeah. Yep, and yep. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure that uh, Zelia Bishop or whoever it was was like, I don't know, Binger. <laughs> Sounds like Godibo probably didn't fit the mood. Of the, yes. Yeah. Not not an ideal. The terror. The, 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 the Godibo horror is not the same thing somehow. <laughs> Although if you've been to Godibo, it's not not the same thing. No, yeah. not at all. Um, I, I dated a girl from there once. There um, you go. There was horror. Horror plenty. Horror happened. Uh, so what uh, what things do you like best about it in our culture, of the mythos and the culture? How, where have you seen its influence that you might didn't expect? Well, I mean, one of the places that you see it, for example, is, I mean, my favorite sort of immersion of it is in things like Hellboy where you get uh, Mike McDola who obviously knows Lovecraft and loves him but doesn't want to just go the straight up oh Hellboy's fighting as a thought so he presents his own sort of take on this outward force that is is present the Ogdru uh, Jihad Um, and that's that's a fun thing Uh, I like it when a creative artist looks at the mythos and says, how can I take what's true about it and put it into my fiction? Uh, I think my favorite sort of, oh my God, moment was maybe when I was reading the unedited version of The Stand, when Randall Flagg is having his final rant there in the in Las Vegas, I think it's on top of the Hoover Dam, and he announces that he's near Lothotep. And it's like, what? What? <laughs> and it was just, hey, there you go. Just, <laughs> just a little moment. I was near Lothotep all that time. So the Dark Tower universe is connected. To oh yeah, absolutely. Everything's connected. Um, uh, the uh, th- there's also um, some really great stuff in like the early uh, Doctor Fates and in the uh, Doc- Doctor Strange. There's some great things that are basically Lovecraft that show up. Uh, there's, I think a, there's a go- real Ghostbusters episode that is absolutely uh, shows up in Donald Duck. And there's a Donald Duck uh, comic book called The Call of Caruso. <laughs> In which uh, a haunting music that uh, Donald Duck hears in his dreams turns him into an opera singer, and is awakening a, a un, uh, an uncanny being from beneath the ocean, and they have to stop Donald Duck from being an opera singer. So it's an Eric Zahn. It's sort a of very thing. Eric Zahn, yeah, but it's in Donald Duck, and what's not to love, right? <sighs> yeah, no, it shows up a lot of different places, and then now, as you say, it's so, so much uh, nerd bacon that when it shows up on South Park, you're like, well, what took South Park so long? Yes, right? Come on, guys. 
And in fact, uh, in in our other podcast on board games and maybe in on RPGs, we refer to Cthulhu as the bacon of gaming. Yeah. Because it is, you know, everything seems to be, oh, we have done this and now we are adding Cthulhu to it because why not? And because it makes it better uh, and saltier. Yeah, well, yes, it's a little <laughs> saltier. Uh, but so are there movies that you've seen that, that you'd like to recommend that have the Cthulhu theme or, or elements of it that... There's a couple. Um, I will recommend, first off, uh, Alien Raiders, which is a movie that is so much like a Cthulhu investigation in that it opens up. There's these people, they show up at a gas station, a, a, a sort of a convenience store in the middle of nowhere, and they start taking hostages and doing tests to find out if there's aliens. Okay. And for a very long time in the movie, you do not know if you are rooting for the guys or not. <laughs> and, and to tell us would be a spoiler. Exactly. So. And there's another movie called um, uh, They Look Like People, mm-hmm. which is the same sort of thing where a guy takes his friend in and his friend's like, you know, hey, NBD, but KBD, everyone else is aliens except you and me. And they're trying to haunt us and possess us and take us over. And for a long time, we don't know. Is this a horror movie or is this a... Sort of a psychological adult psychological drama movie in which he's got a crazy friend, and uh, the movie Cthulhu, um, uh, by, by I think Tony Gildark, I believe is the name of the guy that did it. Tony Gildark, yeah, I believe so. Um, Boy, that name's a little on the nose. Yes, well, I may have made it up, which is huh? <laughs> okay. I mean, but uh, believe it or not, Tori Spelling is in it and is not the most Lovecraftian thing in it, but it is a retelling of Shadows Over Innsmouth. And it is retelling of Shadows Over Innsmouth, and this is not the way that I would have gone with this material, as a um, uh, a coming out movie for a gay protagonist. And this is not the direction my mind would have gone, but when I said, for example, it's possible now to reread Lovecraft in different ways, this is one of those ways that it's possible to reread it. But the effect, the way that they shot it, is very, it's amazingly better than you think it's going to be going in knowing that it's called Cthulhu and it stars Tori Spelling. It doesn't star her, first of all. She is a, a sort of, it shows up in a in a guest role and is a thing. But uh, <laughs> it is really well put together. There's sort of an endless susurrus of global warming and rising ocean levels and all kinds of things going on and crisis and the world falling apart. This guy's coming back to this hometown that he has left for a long time, mm-hmm. you know, reawakening these things within him that he didn't know about. There's a weird cult in the town. We don't know what they're up to. And I was reading the blog of the guy who made the movie when they said that we shot this scene with the with the deep one, basically, under the tunnels of the of the town. We had a bunch of really great shots, and it turns out we'd overexposed the film or whatever, and we couldn't use any of them. So the only shots we had were these sort of murky half-scene shots, and we had to edit the whole scene without ever seeing the monster. And I was like, good! Yes. That's exactly how you want to make a monster movie, is, is that way. And so the result, I think, is Cthulhu became better than the sum of its parts by a long chalk. It is not by any... It's not Let the Right One In. It is not a masterpiece. Right. But in the sadly non-competitive world of Cthulhu film, it is <laughs> it is one of the better ones. Well, well the sadly non-completely, because, yeah, there are... And everything, like in Guardians of the Galaxy, you could point it. Right. Yes. There's, there's and, certainly elements of it. Yes. Once once you start having anything with tentacle with uh, with tentacles, those rolling tentacle monsters in Force Awakens, right? right the chase uh, Ray and Han uh, back and forth down the corridors, 
those are freaking shoggoths. You and I know they're shoggoths. Yeah, shape shifting tentacles, you yep. know, what have you. Yeah, that's what it is. Checklist. And so uh, the, it, it sort of draws its way in there, and that's what it is. And you can certainly do a Cthuloid reading of the Star Wars universe without you know, falling off a log. It'd be that easy. Yeah. Um, there's also uh, a movie called Exile, which was originally called the Sunderland Experiment or the Sunderland Project, which I saw at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. And if anyone's a fan of Lovecraft in film, they should go to that. It's in Portland, Oregon every year, and it has satellite film festivals in San Pedro and in Providence. So Because you'd have to. Go to those. Yeah. Uh, but I go to the one in Portland uh, every October, and they have a... Uh, I, I saw uh, Exile there, which is... A miraculously good uh, Lovecraftian film, but again, without using any names. You, or if you are woke, you say, "Oh, that's that's Shubnegaroth that's going on there. That's mm-hmm. what's happening." But if you're not, you're like, "This is just horrific and awful," and I can't even begin to think about how awful this is because that's what it is. It's very, very good. So, Exile is the name of the film, formerly the Sunderland Experiment. Uh, look for it online and uh, tell them Ken sent you, or no, or don't. They don't know me. Any other comics or other things that you would like to point to Cthulhu-wise? Um, Alan Moore, obviously, has done a bunch of them. He did The Courtyard, which was an adaptation of his short story, which was very good. Uh, the Neonomicon, which a lot of people did not like, but I liked because it was the combination of Moore and Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. If, you're a, if you're a great creator, I would prefer to see half you, half Lovecraft, <laughs> right? As opposed to just you doing Lovecraft not as well as Lovecraft did Lovecraft. Uh, and then he's uh, in the middle, I guess, or it's just finished Providence, which is his sort of reified uh, version of, uh, of a secret history of Lovecraft, which is another great thing. Um, and uh, Moore is terrific. Uh, he's, he's the William Shakespeare of comics. 500 years from now, people will be writing dumb theories that he was actually Jimmy Page or something because they won't be able to believe that some guy from Northampton was that good. Crazy, but good. And crazy, but good. It's not an either or a lot of times. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, and Neil Gaiman did uh, Sherlock Holmes. Yes, he did The Study uh, in Emerald. The Study in Emerald, that's yes. the one. Which is a little facile for my tastes. But again, it's the example of uh, someone who's not approaching Lovecraft with the same uh, symbolic or philosophical goals. And so he's writing his own sort of story. Right. And, uh, you know, great, but it's one of those things where, uh, like many shaggy dogs, if you figure it out on page one, you've got 45 pages left before the rest of the world catches up to you. Um, and so one of my favorite uh, things that came into the mythos was uh, Matt Howarth did uh, Those Annoying Post Brothers and Savage yes. Henry where Cthulhu was a character in the comics. and uh, He was the bass player, and, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, and then they later said, well, why do, you, why do you call yourself Cthulhu if you look like a Shoggoth? Obviously you're a Shoggoth. And I'm like, okay, well, he's obviously gotten fan mail. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, then I quit collecting comics, and I went back, and I couldn't find where anything else happened after I stopped. So I'm afraid that my stopping purchasing his comics is why they stopped. That may have been you it. Know? It so may have been you. That one guy buying his stuff, like, oh, now we can't put them out. Um, but of course, it's he's he's rampant all over comics in a variety of things. Oh yeah. Um, that uh, you know there is some in the Sandman. Uh, series by Gaiman as well. Right. Go, oh, okay. That mask may be mm-hmm. something or other, but um, they just—it's just everywhere. Um, and steampunk, of course, uh, which is fading in and out of fashion with such rapidity that you can't tell whether this year is it actually a thing or is it a was it a thing last year, and so we can't like it this year. Um, seriously embraces all things mythos. Yeah, um, and that's again because I think they are uh, 
trying to have the cake of modernity without eating it. Yes. Right? So there's very much the sense that they want to be writing from a 21st century perspective, but they want to be writing back in the fun times of uh, the British Empire and cogs and gears and everything. Steampunk is an interesting case because it's the same... I think it comes from the same impulse that Fuzzy Cthulhu comes from and that Victorian fairy tales come from. That it comes from domestication. The desire to domesticate something that scares you. So when the Victorians are writing their stories about cute darling little fairies that go around in the garden, what they're doing is they're trying to domesticate the fear of the natural world because they're building all those railroads, they're building all the factories, they're tearing coal out of the earth. They're like, boy, if Mother Nature really does uh, get mad, we are screwed. Yes. And so they are domesticating the fairies, which of course are these great stories about the horrible plan that is going outside ever. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And so they turn them into these darn little kids. And the same thing happens, I think, with steampunk, because we are now in a world of technology where uh, back when you and I were kids, you or I could rebuild our car, right? It was mm -hmm. super easy. I mean, not super easy, but we could do it. Yeah. And we probably both did it. But now you and I cannot rebuild a car because there's computers and all manner of other wonky mahogany in it, and we don't understand it. And same thing with our phones, with our computers, with these things that are omnipresent in our lives. And so the notion of domesticating technology back to gears and boilers, back to the thing that you can actually sort of figure out. Although, again, I would not necessarily say the average steampunk can build a train, but they at least can understand maybe how a train works. They understand the premise, if not, exactly. the, if not the Exactly, right, physics. if not, the, if not the, uh, the technicalities. But that's that same sort of domesticating tendency. You take something that's scary, the omnipresence of uncontrollable, untouchable technology in our lives, and you say, nope, we're going to control it, we're going to make it cute, we're going to put gears on it and goggles and pretend that there's no hard choices we can have imperialism without being mean to foreigners mm -hmm. everything's going to be special and fine we're we're going to just uh coat it all in cotton wool and, and feel good about it and i think that same thing happens with the cute thulu stuff where you look at the literal uh extinction events out there you look at cthulhu which symbolizes them and you say well i don't want to think about any of that i'd rather make a plush cthulhu i'd rather make a fun cartoon cthulhu i'd rather make him a bass player and you pull that in, and you can do it well. Obviously, there's plenty of great. I mean, the Andrew Lang's fairy stories are great. They're they're domesticated, but they're great. There's plenty of great steampunk. There's plenty of great cute Thulu, but it comes from that desire to domesticate. Yeah, which sort of pulls from our first episode of this podcast when we were talking about Terry Pratchett. He he talks about the domestication of mythology yeah. with his hog father mm -hmm. and well and several of other of his things where uh, it, it happens because that's how people have changed mm -hmm. um, and that uh, I hadn't seen it in that sort of embodiment of what you're talking about I also I think with the steampunk thing is that uh, you know every day now we have a new world right it's like yeah. somebody's brought out cell phones somebody's brought out computer cell phones uh, we're having self-driving cars and all these things and you can look back at the age of steam as sort of one of the first really huge changes and everything was new and fresh and it's also something that we can understand so it's sort of taking the the new and fresh and removing a lot of the fear right but you're still playing in that new stuff is adventurous but it's not as complicated as today's new stuff is. Yeah, it's, it's a way to say, hey, we used to have a time when everything got turned ass over tea kettle and it all came out all right, yeah. if you were Britain or America. Um, <laughs> less so if you were the Congo. Yes. Um, so everything's fine. That's right. And uh, we're going to get through this just fine, too. And I think that that's another part of it, is that that uh, sense of historical parallelism. And to an extent, I think that may be another reason why people like Cthulhu, because... 
although Lovecraft was writing up-to-the-minute modern techno-thrillers, we are now reading them as stories set in the 20s and 30s. And so that sort of going back into the comforting past, uh, weirdly, is a aspect of Cthulhu role-playing and Cthulhu presentation that I think people like. They're like, oh, it's the Jazz Age, it's Flappers, it's Al Capone, how, how great. And, you know, they forget, oh, it's also Hitler and Stalin and the rape of Nanjing uh, and everything that was awful about that. And so there's a degree of sort of comfort there's even a degree of comfort in you know having Nazis around to punch because at least you you know that there's Nazis and everyone's agreed yeah we should pretty much take those guys down because they're awful. I was gonna say if you're playing Ken Heights role playing game you don't have a world without any of those. Right things. yeah right. Yeah, so. Well I mean that's because uh, but but in <laughs> fairness what I mean I put plenty of Zeppelins and other sort of twenties and thirties kitsch into my role playing game because I love it. I wouldn't complain. <laughs> yeah right. All right. But but I'm not like uh, I'm not better than anybody. Well I'm better at it but I'm not. You know, philosophically any better. Well, um, any last thoughts on the Cthulhu mythos or maybe sort of what you'd like to see done with it um, in the next uh, you know, few years? I would like to see an A-list movie. I would like to see a really good movie of the mythos. I would like to see Darren Aronofsky do uh, Dreams of the Witch House. I would like to see Ridley Scott do At the Mountains of Madness. I would like to see an A-list director you know, pay back uh, I mean, Ridley Scott, Alien is a Cthulhu story. We all know it's a Cthulhu story. Mm-hmm. Come on, man. Pay some rent on the topic. <laughs> um, I would also like to see, uh, you know, it, and it seems sort of mean to say, well, you've got Neil Gaiman and Michael Chabon and all these other great novels, uh, Nick Mamadas, all these guys writing great mythos stories. I want more. But, yeah, let's get let's get James Elroy to write a mythos story. Let's get Faye Weldon to write a mythos story. Some of these sort of great writers who are just so... Uh, a powerful and capable of taking genre fiction and elevating it to literature. Let's see one of those guys do a, a Lovecraft story. Let's not leave it all for poor Laird Barron. All right. Um, well, so that's great, Ken. I, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about well stuff that we've been talking about since 1983 ish, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, that if if you could uh, let our listeners know where they can hear you talking about more stuff and where you can be found on the internet. Okay. Uh, You can hear me and my beloved Canadian confrere Robin D. Laws talking about stuff on Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. You can directly sponsor said talk at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. And you can also see me at Kenneth Height on the Twitter, at Kenneth Height on the Facebook. And soon, if not already, you can even get the Cthulhu crate from me from the good people at Illusionist, who will have a crate full of Cthulhu stuff that will be delivered to you at some interval of time for some amount of money, and go ask them. Wait, this is going to be a recurring Cthulhu crate? Yeah, this will be a Cthulhu crate. And you wait until the last ten seconds of the show. That's the Lovecraft way. Uh. You build up with a mountain of detail, and then you drop them off the edge of the vertiginous horror. Um, And your Kickstarter. And my Kickstarter, yes. Kickstarter for Tour to Lovecraft, The Destinations. Ongoing now, ideally. Which will also have the first Tour to Lovecraft. Yes. If we do well, then we will go back and we will um, uh, expand out uh, Tour to Lovecraft the Tales. And even if it doesn't go well, you'll still be able to buy it in the backer kit add-ons because, why come not? on, why yeah, not? That's right. <laughs> so I'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us for this Tour to Lovecraft. Can I say that, Ken? Yes. yes. Yes, you can do it. You, okay. you have a, you have a uh, non-commercial license. All right. To Excellent. You. Quote the title of my book as much as you'd like. <laughs> uh, and uh, for, for joining us and listening to all things uh, Cthulhu-y. Uh, though I really do, I prefer Yogg-Sothery to, to the Cthulhu mythos. But um, 
you know. Well, it is what it is. It is what it is. Yes. Uh, Things you can't change is the Cthulhu mythos, after all. <laughs> really but yeah, Young Sothery is, is more fun. Yes. And, and that's what uh, Lovecraft called it, right? right well, uh, to the extent he called it anything, he called it that. Oh. Um, he called it a bunch of different things, but uh, uh, he, the term that he did use that we could use is, like you say, well, God, this is going on forever. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, to the extent he called it anything, yes, that's what he called it. All right, I'm sticking with that. I'm calling it a win. All right, so you can find out more about the show by heading over to inversegenius.com, and there you'll find all of our other podcasts on board games, on RPGs, the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast, on mini games, and, of course, we also host the Room Escape Divas. So once again, that's inversegenius.com. And thank you for listening. I'm Donald Dennis. And I'm Kenneth Height. And you've been listening to Inverse Genius. That's it for this episode of the Inverse Genius Podcast. The Inverse Genius Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 License. Thank you.